You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. In connection with the sermon this evening, we have two readings. I invite you first to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 20. We'll begin at verse 30 and we'll read through chapter 21 verse 14. And our text will be the verses immediately following that. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter... Thomas, called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net out on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did... They were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer tunic around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish fish you have just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. And then if you would turn to the Old Testament, to Psalm 126. The Psalm of Ascents, that people would sing as they made their pilgrimage up to the city of Jerusalem every year. Actually, a number of times a year. And a fitting psalm for us to read tonight, as we are on our way to the new Jerusalem. When the Lord brought back the captives to Zion, we were like men who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. He who goes out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with him. Our text this evening is from the Gospel according to John, chapter 21, the verses 15 through 19. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? 
He answered, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, Take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked him a third time, Do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, Feed my sheep. I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we sit here on this last day of the year of our Lord, 2010, and we look back on the year that was, how would you characterize it? What things stick out to you? What things do you remember? What things are remembered? Were notable in this past year? The global debt crisis? Global catastrophes? Major earthquake in Haiti? Flooding in Pakistan? Flooding that continues now in Australia? How about the growing political unrest in many parts of the world? The tensions between North and South Korea. The tensions between North and South Sudan. Or perhaps other places in the world. That is, you could say, a bit of a pessimistic characterization of this past year. But I would ask you, how have God's people often characterized their years past? A favorite psalm to read and to sing at New Year's time is Psalm 90. Psalm 90, we will, we have sung and we will sing from several verses from that psalm tonight. And that, what is characteristic of that psalm is its testimony to God's faithfulness, yes. But also the waywardness and the sinfulness of His people. A people who constantly live in dependence upon God for His forgiveness and for His mercy. It's realistic about the fallibility of people. The Gospel of John, from which our text this evening comes, is also realistic about the fallibility of people. It's realistic about the the fallen state of this world. It's a place of darkness. It's a place where the prince of darkness holds a lot of power. And it's realistic about the fallibility of the servants of the Lord. Just think of Peter, who figures largely in our text. It's precisely because of this fallen state and this fallibility, it's precisely because of this that Jesus Christ came. The message of the Gospel, the good news in all of this, is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. It's precisely because this world rejects God and even zealous servants fall that Jesus Christ came into this world. He has the power to forgive. He has the power to change. 
He is a power, a power to believe in, a power to seek refuge in among the storms of life, amidst the darkness of life. He displays His power to us so that we might see Him, be drawn to Him, find hope and comfort in Him, and worship Him. That we, as we go to Him, might follow Him wherever He leads us. In a fallen world, Jesus Christ displays His power at work in fallible servants. It's true. It's true, and it's very comforting. In a fallen world, Jesus Christ displays His power in fallible servants. We'll see this evening His power to restore, His power to love, and His power to call. His power to say, follow me. In a fallen world, Jesus Christ displays His power to restore infallible people. In a fallible world with fallible people, the power to restore is an important thing. That list of events from 2010 that I gave you is a depressing one. Were it not for the power of restoration, it would be even more depressing. We trust that Pakistan will rebuild. We trust that one way or another, this global debt crisis will work itself out. We think that even Haiti, with all of its troubles, will rebuild and move on. So there is rebuilding for fallen buildings and fallen countries and fallen economies. What about for fallen people? What about for fallen humans? What about for sinful human beings? Because it's often our regrets and failures that stick with us in life. This last day of 2010, perhaps those are the things that are sticking with you. You don't remember all the tests that you passed, You always remember that one that you failed. Your wife doesn't remember all those special days that you remembered. She remembers that one that you forgot. You don't hold in mind, in your mind, all the times that you showed proper love and care to your children. What sticks with you is that one time that you totally lost it. Is there restoration for fallen human beings? Is there hope for hurting souls and fallible servants in 2011? Well, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is, yes. Yes, there is. It's all about where you look for it. If you want a picture of, of human fallibility, of rashness, of, and frequently of disappointment, then you go to one of the four gospels, you sit down and you Google, Simon Peter. Simon Peter. That unofficial leader of the group of disciples, the outspoken supporter of his teacher Jesus, was a study in the fallibility of Jesus' servants. Peter. Of course, Peter wasn't always disappointing to his Lord. In fact, from Peter's mouth come some of the most beautiful words of confession and praise. He says to Jesus in John 6, 
Lord, to whom should we go? You have the words of eternal life. He says to Jesus in John 13, I will lay down my life for you. Beautiful words. But yet, that same zeal and passion that led him to say those words could quickly become rash and impetuous and end up getting Peter into trouble. Like the time in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he pulled out a sword and he cut off the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest, earning himself a rebuke from the very one he was trying to protect, from Jesus. And for Peter, things really get worse when the going really gets tough. You probably know the story. Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And all his disciples leave him. Peter, however, does not abandon him completely. And it seems like at one moment he's going to redeem himself and stand by his Lord when he shows up at the same place where Jesus is is under trial. But of course, this, this hope is devastatingly wrong. And not the way things unfold. Rather, instead of suffering for Jesus, Peter avoids embarrassment and disgrace by denying his Lord. He denies him three times. Just think about that for a moment. You might have, in this past year, been embarrassed about your faith. You might have, at a certain moment, kept quiet about Jesus. You might have done wrong things in the name of Jesus Christ. But have you ever outright denied him? Have you ever denied him three times consecutively? In advance of the time when Jesus Christ would suffer the most, when he was abandoned by all his friends, he was being persecuted and tortured by his enemies, Peter not only left his Lord, but he denied him. He rejected him. Three times. Now, I really don't mean to rub Peter's nose in it here, but this is the truth. I don't mean to point out what a bad guy he is, but this serves for background, for understanding what happens when the Lord Jesus goes to have breakfast on the beach and speak to Peter and the other disciples. And brothers and sisters, it's very, very important background for us as well. For us, fallible servants who struggle with our fallibility, our waywardness, our problems, our errors. For us who struggle against sin and find ourselves uh, being led into all sorts of problems serving the Lord, Peter's troubled background shows to us the grace of God at work. Peter's weaknesses and even his sinfulness. Yes, it is sinfulness. He denies Jesus Christ. Let's not call it anything else but what it is. It's sin. That very fact, that very act becomes a powerful display of the power of Jesus Christ to restore and to put back into service fallible servants. So how does he do it? Well, 
As we read, Jesus comes to the shore where Peter and some other disciples are fishing, and he gives them some fishing advice. He tells them to throw the net on the other side of the boat. Upon realizing who it is, Jesus, uh, Peter, ever the impetuous one, throws on his tunic and jumps into the water. That seems to be the thing that first came to his mind. And he swims to the shore to meet Jesus. He's already seen the risen Lord when he was with the other disciples in the upper room. But that's no reason for Peter not to throw on your tunic, jump into the water, and be the first one there to see Jesus. And after they enjoy some bread and some fish on the shore, Jesus puts a question to to Peter. Simon, he says, do you love me more than these? By this he means, do you love me more than these other disciples? You who during your life were always quick to confess your love, your faithfulness, your devotion. Do you truly love me more than these? Are you still committed to me above them as you always claimed you have been? Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Again, the question comes, Peter, do you love me more than these? Yes, you know that I love you. And then a third time, that painful third time, John writes, Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? They say that if you want to catch someone in a lie, you ask them the question three times, you repeat yourself three times. This is the trick that's employed by border guards, police officers. They won't ask you once, not twice, three times. It's hard to to hang on to a lie that many times. Not that that's when Peter, what Peter is doing when he says, Lord, you know that I love you. But still, why would Jesus ask him three times? Many would find that offensive. And it certainly is hurtful, especially because we all know exactly why Jesus asked him three times, do you love me? It's because that's the number of times that uh, that Peter had denied his Lord. Three times he said that he didn't know the Lord. And now three times the Lord asks him if he truly loves him. These questions are are hurtful. Peter hurts. They're, They're poignant, they're probing, they're painful for Peter. And they're also necessary. They're necessary in what Jesus is doing. He's not trying to hurt Peter. He's trying to restore him in front of the other disciples. Peter, as the unofficial leader of the group, has fallen the furthest in the events surrounding Jesus' death. But now, in the sight of his peers, Jesus gives Peter the opportunity to speak again of his love and so to be restored. It hurts. It hurts. Jesus pulls out that knife of sanctification and skillfully applies it to his faithful servant. It hurts, but it's effective. A fallible servant, yes. But Jesus Christ has the power to restore. Even more, when these kind of servants are restored, the ones who sin, the ones who err, the ones who are reduced to tears and weeping and mourning because of their actions, they make the best servants. Those who go out weeping, 
Return with songs of joy. Perhaps your reflection on the past year contains those regrets, those failures. You look back and what is obvious to you is your own sinfulness. Then look at the power of Jesus Christ on display here. Look at His power to apply that knife of sanctification. Look at His power to restore His servants. Because that is what Jesus is showing to us. His power to restore. He's also showing us His power to love. Because Peter's restoration is not mere restoration. Three times Peter's given an opportunity to express his love for Jesus. Yet Peter's not merely restored in having a chance to reiterate his devotion. No, Peter is restored for a purpose. Jesus responds to Peter's commitment, uh, to, to Peter's confession with a demand. Restored servants are called to serve, called to love. Three times Jesus calls Peter to show his love by caring for his people. Feed my lambs. Take care of my sheep. Feed my sheep. What does this mean? What what is the Lord Jesus doing here? Well, we've already seen that Jesus restores fallible servants. Now we see that Jesus uses restored fallible servants. Jesus wasn't finished with Peter after he had denied him three times. He wasn't ready to throw him off and and move on without him. No. He was resolved to use him. To use him effectively. And Peter was more useful to serve Jesus after his fall. Just look at the different picture of Peter that you see in the book of Acts, for example. Or that you see in his letters to the churches. It's It's a Peter who's responsible, who's mature who's overwhelmingly loving and caring for God's people. It all started here. When Jesus commanded Peter to feed his lambs, take care of his sheep, and feed his sheep. There's been a lot of ink spilled about a number of things in this passage that I'm going to move over quite quickly. Uh, Two things in particular... Jesus here uses two different words for love. Two different words for love in the original. Phileo and agapo. Agapao, sorry. That's one thing that he does there. And he uses different ways of speaking about God's people. He calls them both lambs and sheep. And they're supposed to do different things. Feed and take care of. So, what are the differences there? And this is where I'm going to move very quickly and say... I don't think there's much difference going on in those different words for love, different words for sheep and lambs. I think what Jesus is talking about here is summed up in one thing. He's saying to Peter three times, love my people. Love my people. Look after my people. Especially the ones who need my love. Love them. You see, the sheep and the lambs, so the sheep and their children, they really belong to Jesus. As he's taught in his life, and Peter will later teach 
Jesus is the true shepherd. He's the good shepherd. He's the great shepherd. All the sheep are His sheep. He cares for them. He has already, at this point, laid down His life for them and shown His love for them. But sheep need constant and continued care. They're fallible. They're prone to to rash decisions. That's what sheep do. They just do whatever they want to do. They're prone to wander and do whatever seems right to them at a particular time. Actually, it sounds a lot like Peter, doesn't it? Sheep, with the lambs included, they need correction and guidance and most of all, love. Jesus is concerned about these fallible sheep and He's going to use Peter to care for them. Peter, that fallible, restored servant. Isn't that amazing? Jesus uses these restored servants to care for His sheep. And so I'd invite you again to reflect back on the year 2010. Has it been a tough year for you? Well, then consider that God is using these present trials, failings, weaknesses, and even sins to make you into a more useful servant for Him. No, God is not the author of sin, but God can certainly use the sins of His people for His glorious purpose. He might hold it in your face till it hurts. But He'll use you. The restoration of Peter teaches us that God can use us too. Jesus Christ uses restored servants, restored sinners to care for His sheep. He uses those who themselves need a shepherd to look after them to care for His lambs and His sheep, to care for those who are weak and poor and misguided and and fallible. The fallenness of this world, brothers and sisters, on the cusp of 2011, urges us to do something. But only the powerful love of Jesus Christ can equip us. What does this world need? Does it need more aid to fix those broken areas? Yes. Does it need people to rush to the scene? Yes. Does it need people to help work out the mess that we have with all this dead and economic crisis? Yes. But what does it need even more? What does this dark and fallen world need? It needs love. It needs love. It needs the love of Jesus Christ. It needs the love of the Good Shepherd. It needs the love of the shepherd working through restored, fallible sinners like us. Jesus displays His power to love through His servants. He also displays His power to call His servants into action. Through Peter, Jesus displays His power to love. And He displays His power to call Fallible servants to follow Him in a life of service. Restored, loving servants are called called to follow Jesus. What does that mean? 
That means that restored servants who love are called to a life of trouble and hardship. Peter wasn't only called to a life of care for God's people, he was called to a life of trouble and hardship, a life of suffering. And it's not a far trip to apply this directly to us. We can do it through Peter's own words in 1 Peter 5, verse 10. And the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory after you have suffered a little while, will Himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Restored sinners, also for us today at the beginning of 2011, are not called to a life of ease and enjoyment of relaxation, we're called to a life of service. And that service often entails trouble and hardship. Our text this evening shows us that in two places. First, it shows us in that somewhat hard-to-understand statement that Jesus gives to Peter, verse 18 of our text. I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. What's that talking about? Well, that would perhaps be difficult to understand, except that John tells us exactly what that's talking about. By this, Jesus was speaking about the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Stretch out your hands, we know, refers to crucifixion. And that is the death that Peter suffered, that he would suffer at the hands of the Romans. The part about dressing you and leading you where you don't want to go refers to the Romans' practice of of making someone carry that cross on their back to their place of crucifixion, just like the Lord Jesus did. It was a way of publicly humiliating them, increasing the suffering that they had under their crucifixion. And so that fallible servant would have the glorious opportunity of glorifying God in the last thing he would do on this earth, in his very death, by dying like Jesus, on a cross of suffering and rejection. This is the kind of thing that glorifies God, obedience with the consequent suffering that shows his power. That glorifies God. In John 13, verse 37, Peter had asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And after all he had gone through, that confession seemed just feeble. But now, Jesus prophesies his restoration, that his restoration will be made finally complete when he's able to love his shepherd to the very point of death. That is truly love. So the first way that Jesus shows his power to call is in the calling of Peter to die, to be crucified for him. The second is in the, the second calling is in the words, follow me. The very end of our text, verse 19. Follow me. This command too comes with suffering. It implies suffering. You see, 
even up until the point when Peter gave his life, or when his life was taken from him on the cross under the Romans, really that crucifixion was just the climax of a life that was already being given for God. The words, follow me, are just shorthand for the command that Jesus had given on several other occasions when he had said, take up your cross daily and follow me. This is understood in the, the, do you love me? Do you love me? Jesus teaches elsewhere in John, if you truly love your brother, you will lay down your life for him. It's understood in that following the final directive that Jesus gives to Peter, follow me. Follow me. This is a command that he gives to each and every one of his disciples, each and every one of his servants, to all restored sinners who are called to a life of service. Follow me. Take up your cross daily and follow me. What does this mean? It means denying yourself every day. Taking up your cross, dying to yourself, and living for God. It means suffering. It's not easy to take up your cross. It means suffering, but not in vain. Suffering for the glory of Jesus Christ. It means loving the lambs and the sheep that belong to Jesus. And in the midst of all that, It means experiencing the true joy and glory of the approval of God as you follow in the very footsteps of His beloved Son, Jesus Christ. What kind of year is 2011 going to be? One thing I know, it's going to be the year of our Lord. It's going to be the year in which Jesus Christ reigns from the throne on high and in which He will lead His church. And so let it be a year in which Jesus Christ leads you. Take up your cross. Set it on that path of self-denial and humble service and follow Jesus. Live where the fallenness of this world and the power of Jesus Christ meet. Live there. Dwell there. Work there. Serve there. In a restored life. In a life of love. Of giving yourself. Of caring for others. A life of following after Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we glorify you, we praise you for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, in this year to come, give us the grace to follow you. We thank you for the grace, for your grace on display that you use us Fallible servants, would you, O Lord, in this year to come, continue to restore us, 
renew us and use us for your wonderful and glorious purpose. We pray, dear Father, that you would care, that you would use us to care for your sheep. Fill our hearts with love each and every day. Fill our hearts with, with care and, and affection and concern for your people. And so give, give ourselves to loving them and in doing so, showing your love for them. And give us the faith to follow by the power of your Holy Spirit to follow Jesus Christ, to hear his command and to obey it, to take up our cross every day and follow him. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.